0: i standing for the reading of the Word of God this morning from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. And we will read this verse as we now conclude the Lord's Prayer and the last petition together. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our gracious Father, make us mindful of this last but important petition that the Lord himself taught us to pray and an emphatic imperative that we are to pray. And we pray that this would not be slack in our spiritual lives as fathers pray with their families and over their families, as we as leaders of the church pray over the church and with the church. And we pray that we would ever be mindful as individuals to be watchful and pray that we would not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, Lord, but the flesh is weak. So keep us from being sifted as wheat as the enemy asks for our name, as he sought for Peter. Lord, we ask that you would protect us and guide us in this message and empower it with your spirit, that it would invigorate all the more fervor and energy in our prayer life as we pray, as we pray with balance, as we pray with completeness for those things that you've taught us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this last petition, I believe this is the most neglected, the one that is the least considered, and the one that we give the least emphasis to in all of our prayer life, as a people, as families, as family worship, and as a church. And I believe this is one of those direct reasons that many Christians are suffering in their spiritual life and not progressing in their sanctification like they should, and why the church is in such a condition in the time in which we live, particularly in this nation as it is. You know, we pray for safe travel, and it's a good thing to pray for safe travel, but we pray for safety in our travels more than we do for our spiritual safety. And yet the spiritual threats are far more numerous and far more dangerous to our lives, our children, our church than what we encounter on the highways every week. Sung Tzu said in his book on art of war, know the enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battle, you will never be in peril. If ignorant of both your enemy and of yourself, you are certain in every battle to be in peril. Last Lord's Day, when we looked at the first petition, lead us not into temptation, we considered the process itself of temptation, how when we have a desire, the desires can often jump out ahead of us and pull us along, and then there is an enticement or a seduction to those desires that would have them to be satisfied in an unlawful manner. That's the process of temptation we also looked at the fact that while God himself does not tempt us in any capacity whatsoever to sin, he may lead us in a path where that process does occur. We looked at many examples or several examples, including the Lord Jesus himself, when the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness for the very purpose that he might be tempted. God may actually do this, and He may lead us in a path where that process would occur, to use it for His glory and to use it for some usefulness. But He may also do it, and He does do it, in order to strengthen you in the trial, to make your faith and your character stronger, so that you might endure with greater capacity, with greater trials, so that you might be a greater warrior for His kingdom. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are praying that God would keep us from the path that would lead us in that process. That we would not have our desires so inflamed and seduced in such a way that we might fail him in seeking to have him satisfied in an inappropriate way, and that if we should ever be in such a place, that he would give us victory. And now we come to the second part of that last petition, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one. The term evil there is is an adjective, and it's an adjective that can be understood in one of two ways. It could either be a neuter adjective in the Greek, and therefore it would be translated as evil, or the forces of evil. Or it could be understood as a masculine adjective, And if it is understood this way, and most translators and most commentaries do understand it this way, it would be translated as the evil one, speaking about specifically Satan. If we're going to be more effectual in praying for spiritual protection and delivery, we need to be aware of the battle that is against us, and we need to know your enemy. Let's consider that this morning as we consider the enemy. But then we're going to turn and what is it that we actually pray for? And we're going to look for the victory that God has given us in Christ who has overcome this world. But let us be mindful of this great enemy because I'm afraid that we often do not pray for our protection and from the deliverance from the evil one because we either take it for granted or we don't. We're not aware of the the great dangers that are around us, and I'm afraid that's probably the case when we pray more for our travel than from protection from him. The evil one is the devil, his proper name that is referred to when the definite article is given to the word Satan is his name, but the word Satan is the word that means accuser and is often used in that context. We see his origin back in that passage that we considered a moment ago in Ezekiel chapter 28, or at least most commentators think that this was referring to Satan. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn back to there, I'm going to address a few things from that passage. In Ezekiel chapter 28, and Ezekiel has been given visions of, by God of invisible things right from the very start by the river Chebar of these angelic cherubim. And then he later comes back to that in Ezekiel 8 through 12. And here in Ezekiel 28, he is addressing the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre. You might think those are the same people, but I think they are different. The word of the Lord came to me saying, in verse 1, said a man, say to the prince of Tyre. And I believe there in verse 2, he's addressing a human being who is the king himself, who is over that region. But then as he comes down later in the passage, verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, now I believe he is referring to the angelic being that is really behind and over the king of Tyre in the earthly realm. Behind the nations are kings. Behind all earthly kings are angelic beings. Behind all of the governments of the nations that are not under the dominion of Christ, there are. A host of evil and malignant and malicious forces that are directing and governing the affairs quite behind the scene, even unawares to the very king of the earthly realm who governs those matters. And we see this in other passages like Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, when Daniel was praying And then he comes and he's approached by an angel to help him understand the visions that he had seen. But this one informed him, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me and I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And what he's meaning there is not the earthly kings of Persia, but the angelic beings that are governing the kings of Persia and these are high orders in rank and file in the angelic realm behind the nation of the king of Persia. Nations who do not have God as their Lord are under the dominion of Satan who governs them with a legion of angels, demons, fallen angels. And no matter how powerful a king or a nation, we are lower than the angels who are over these affairs, and we are subordinate in power. And even authority. In Ezekiel 28, he goes on in verse 12b and says about this angelic being of which we are considering the possibility of this being, the very origin and the fall of Satan. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Here is something that does not apply at all to the king of Tyre. It does not even apply to any human person. He takes us back to the garden, and that's why many commentators believe this was the origin of Satan, even when God created all things, and he beheld, and it was very good. And we find there those 12 stones that are given to us in those four classes of three are exactly the same as the high priest would wear who was adorned with beauty when he went into the presence of God as he ministered there in behalf of the people. And here we have this angelic being adorning those. It says... In the latter part of verse 13, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. And there is something of music that seems to have been gifted and appropriated for this great cherub and this high archangel of God's angelic dominion. And that should give us reason Pause a bit. He was an anointed cherub. Verse 14 You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, and you were holy on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth among the fiery coals. We see there in that great, splendid, heavenly, holy vision in Isaiah 6 that the cherub were those who were attendants to the throne of God. They were in the presence of God attending his throne and they had the coals from the altar there and that's what they picked up to come and touch the lips of Isaiah and purify him through. And here before his fall, we find this one also, a part of that company and yet a very high part of that company. But his pride lifted him up against God. Verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till the iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you. He goes on to say in verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. His pride lifted him up against God. He corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his beauty and those very uh, attributes and the adornment that God had given him. He took and consumed it upon himself and did not focus upon the glory of God, but sought the glory for himself. And God cast him down out of heaven right here to the earth. You might remember that it was here on the earth, Somewhere between Genesis 1.31, when God looked upon all that he had made and he declared it to be very good, and Genesis 3.1, somewhere in there, this one fell. And then <clears throat> he desired to take the entirety of humanity in this earth with him. Well, when he fell, an entire army also fell with him. And we know this from Revelation twelve four. when a third of the angelic host followed Satan in their pride and fell with him right to the earth. And ever since, they have been under their chief leader, this great archangel now fallen, to wreak their havoc on the earth against God and his people. And when man fell in the garden, what he did is he forfeited the dominion that has been given to him over all of the earth, and he forfeited that right into the hands of the enemy, Satan himself, who now has taken his kingdom of darkness and he's just set up this earth as his place of dominion and the earth has been the place of satan's rule and reign until Christ came to restore it but we need to be mindful that his energy and his activity is still going on today but there was a vast army of demonic forces under the leadership of satan and they are supremely evil and supremely powerful. And it's because I do believe that we do not believe that enough is the reason why we neglect to pray this as we should. Man is no match for these malignant angelic beings. These invisible armies roam the earth back and forth to and fro, seeking whom they may devour. But we do need to be aware that while Satan has his vast invisible armies and his forces are at work here upon the earth, that he is, that we as humans are no match for him, but we do need to be aware that God is even his creator and his providential ruler over all even that he can do. But Satan is the chief head of a high, highly organized and a very numerous, intelligent kingdom that is structured with great organization. He is a created being and the most powerful of the creatures in existence except for God. And while he is not omniscient, He is not omnipresent. He does not have the characteristics of his creator in this way. He is therefore no match for God. But we are no match for him. He has vast armies that are ranked in highly organized fashion. And there are ranks and files and assignments and specific abilities that these angelic beings have and they know how to operate in unison and in orchestra, even though they're wreaking chaos and havoc, and even though their own worldview is inconsistent. Ephesians 6 says, I might remind you that there are principalities, and there are powers, and there are rulers. There are cherub, there are seraph, there are angels, there are archangels. There's an entire creation in the invisible realm that we cannot see but is as real as the world that we do. And these invisible forces cover the earth so that the dominion of the evil one does cover the entire face of the world. Satan is behind all of the nations. Satan and his army are behind the dominions whether high or low. He is behind the governments in the earth except those, except those who have acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as their God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Satan is at work intelligently and principally behind all the world systems, behind the banking system, behind the entertainment system, Industry, behind religions of all sorts, in the economies of the world, and behind councils. He is behind humanistic philosophies and scientific endeavors. He's behind and in the university systems, in the government education and schools. He is in the healthcare industry and behind medical fields and the corporate and financial structures. He is behind the working of the internet and social media, the news and propaganda devices and world communications. He is behind the music industry and Hollywood and like organizations and structures in other countries. He is the God of this age, the God of the world, the Prince of the power of the air. And we cannot avoid those institutions in which he is governing. And God left us in this world for a very deliberate reason, to take dominion over all of those things. And yet we pray so little. Deliver us from the evil one that works in them all. It is important to know your enemy and be aware when he is operating and where he is operating and where he has his ground claimed. Sung Su again would declare, those skilled in war will bring the enemy to the field of the battle and are not brought there by him. Now, when you understand where Satan's biggest target is, in fact, he has focused his target on the church, its leaders, and all believers. That is his target. It is God and his people, God and his covenant people. He doesn't really have to target unbelievers. Oh, he uses them as instruments. He can use them as his agents. He uses them quite unwitting to them. He, but he doesn't have to target them because they're already under his dominion. They're already under his veil being useful, and they're very easy to, to orchestrate. So he can focus, actually, his attention and his focus, all of his attention right against God and of his people. That's why the Bible calls him the enemy of God. And the people of God are always the objects of his fierce hatred. In fact, the church of Smyrna was warned that they would be the special onslaught of an attack by Satan in Revelation 2. I sure hope, I sure hope that heritage is never in that kind of focus. The Lord informed Peter that Satan had asked for him, that he would sift him as wheat, and the Lord says, but I prayed for you, Peter. But I pray. Peter was unaware of what was going on behind the scenes, but the Lord let him know. The Lord let him know. And it wasn't but just a few hours later. He said, Peter, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, for the Spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And he falls asleep. Peter, why are you sleeping? Watch and pray. And he falls asleep. Pray on, Peter. Or sleep on, Peter. Peter. You know, when Jesus was born, being the head of the church, he was the largest target. In fact, if Satan could just focus all of his energies and all of his attention upon the head of the church, he could bring the entire institution down. So that's what he did. Our Lord Jesus endured temptations the likes of which you will never know. From the very beginning at birth, Jesus was sought for by Herod because Herod wanted to kill him. And behind Herod was the great enemy. As soon as he entered his public ministry and was anointed, as he came back out of the waters and the Spirit of God lighted upon him, anointing him for his public ministry, the Spirit, before he did anything else, drove him into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan for 40 days. You might recall that when John the Baptist denied the baptism, Jesus said, Suffer it so for now, for we must fulfill all righteousness. See, Adam failed under the temptation in the garden, and now the last Adam, as Paul would call him and Jesus Christ, the the new head of the elect of a new race, must endure the temptation and endure it and be successful. And that he did. But as he was out there in the wilderness, did not the enemy offer up all of the nations and the kingdoms that he could show the Lord Christ? Were they not his to give? Jesus did not deny that. Do you think that was a temptation of the Lord? Do you think the Lord Jesus would desire those nations and those kingdoms. Well, certainly he did because they were his. But now he's being enticed in order to satisfy those desires in an inappropriate way, and so he overcame. He worked. Satan worked in those Pharisees in an attempt to thwart the very thing that Jesus came to do. He entered into the life of Judas, one of his 12 disciples, to betray him. He worked in Pilate so that even the matters of government would end up giving permission to crucify in a Roman manner an innocent victim. Jesus has informed us that his followers will also endure attacks of the enemy and his forces. And the church has been under that attack ever since Pentecost. In fact, as God sent The Spirit upon His people at Pentecost and empowered them with now the great commission. When Jesus was ascending down high, He said, Now all authority has been given to me in heaven and in that invisible realm that you do not see and on earth. Now therefore, go in my power and make disciples of the nations. And what he is saying there is, I have taken the dominion, I have been faithful, and God has now granted me all of those things that I was tempted with earlier, but now rightfully they are mine, and I want you as my people to go in my authority and my power and claim that which is mine. And the church will not be defeated because... Upon the profession of the Lord Christ, who is the Lord Christ, who is the Messiah, Jesus says, and Peter, upon this rock, upon this profession of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My church is triumphant and the kingdom will grow. It will not be defeated. And the kingdom of Satan will not grow right alongside the kingdom of God. However, the kingdom of grow at the expense of the kingdom of Satan. And it has been doing so for the last 2,000 years since it's been given that commission and since it's been living in the victory of Christ. But boy, the battle is real. And if you just stand on that laurel presumptuously and do not pray for the victory, you will be like Peter, where your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. But watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The reason the church is not more victorious and more powerful of the institution that Christ has empowered with His glory and Spirit is because she does not lean upon His graces and His victory and His strength and His power and His might enough. We do not pray as we should and we do not pray for what we should We pray too much for our personal well-being and for our personal safety. We do not pray for our spiritual power and for our spiritual safety like we should in the balance of which we should. Folks, I'm not distracting you from praying for travel safety, but I am trying to energize you to pray for your spiritual safety and for mine and for the church's success because she is so rent asunder with schisms and heresies and the wiles of the devil and tares that have been sown. We have nations to conquer. We have kingdoms to subdue and nations and kings to disciple. That is our mission. And if you don't have that as your vision, your vision is all too small. Christ established his kingdom here on earth to claim the power over it, to have his name exalted in it. And he sent his disciples to take dominion even over nations. Now folks, well, I believe there's a distinct jurisdictional difference between the civil magistrate and kingdoms and kings and nations and the institution of the church. I am not of the persuasion that we keep the two so separate that we cannot claim to be a Christian nation when in fact we are. Now, America is not that. But lest we ever get into a situation where we are ashamed to lay down a stake for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to adorn all of the laws of God unashamed and to keep out all of the heretics and say, this nation is under Christ. Let's not be ashamed to do that. In Revelation in the New Jerusalem, it says that the the glory of kings will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. And those are kings who have been brought under and submit themselves to the Lord Christ and have governed their nations and the affairs of their nations under the reign of Jesus, unashamed. Because when we do so, we claim the ground for Jesus Christ. Our president in the last couple of years, not our current president, but President Obama just in the last few years, has maliciously and and blatantly said, we are not a Christian nation. And as the federal head of our nation, he is making a statement for us as citizens. Put that in contrast to two years ago on Easter weekend, where then Prime Minister Cameron in England went on live TV on the BBC, which was broadcast around the world, and he looks into the camera and says, we are a Christian nation. And there's quite a contrast. Now, I'm not necessarily embracing the all of the worldview of the Church of England and of the government of England, but there is something there that is quite a contrast with our founders, our constitution, our federal head, and our way of doing things. Jesus informed us that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and we want to see a nation whose God is the Lord. Now, that's going to happen internally. And it's going to happen through the regenerative work of the Spirit of God. But when that does happen, we need to be ready to organize in such a way that God the Lord and Jesus Christ is the head of the nation. Now, I think it's important for us to understand as we try to understand our enemy how he operates. I'd like to give us five ways to be aware of because we need to be praying against these things in which our enemy works. Satan... Is a strong seducer. He is called the tempter, and he works constantly trying to seduce and entice you according to your desires, even your good desires, but to fulfill those desires in an inappropriate manner and an unlawful means. Now, notice he is aiming these things at God's people. He desires to lead God's people into sin because the end of sin is death. So he capitalizes on our weaknesses. He probably knows you better than you know yourself. He probably knows the chinks in your armor that you are not even aware of. And one of the ways he attempts is employing the allurements of the world that is under his dominion in such a way that he now has the... Christians in the church finding pleasure in the things of which he is governing. Folks, we need to be really careful of the world system and all of its enticements and entrapments. The very subtle cultivation of your soul. You know, Cultivation is something that takes place over long periods of time and oftentimes is very subtle. You cultivate the ground and you... Get it ready with fertilizer, and you uh, you you get the seed ready. And you break up the fallow ground, you make it soft. You do all that before the seed is even planted. And then you plant the seed, and then you take the weeds out, and then you 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 water it, and then you wait, and and then soon a little shoot shoots up. But it's a while before that fruit comes, and in those very subtle, long kinds of cultivation, there's a very dangerous. That's going on with the enticements and the cultivation of your soul. He is a strong seducer. Secondly, he is a destructive deceiver. Deception is an art where he is a master. He deceives Christians into thinking they are attaining a desired good through a wrong means or in doing something that is wrong. It is never right to do wrong in order to do right. The old Dr. Bob Jones Sr. would say, Satan constantly lays snares for men to make them captive of his schemes. And the whole world is under the sway and persuasion of this wicked one. And so he capitalizes on falsehood and deceit and lies. He's called the father of lies. A damnable heresy is usually taking the gospel and maligning it ever so slightly. In fact, the minimal amount of malignment to get you to still believe it, but is damnable to your soul. Take all of grace and just put a little works to it so that you are not relying upon Christ completely. Completely. Or you take God and you put him alongside of other trust and other idols and other gods. But Satan is a great imposter. So great that apart from the Spirit of God, you will not be able to discern this angel of light. If we take Isaiah 14 and we take that passage in which he was referred to If you're seeing an identity there as Lucifer, which means the great morning star. Satan knows how to disguise himself as an angel of light. Heresies come in all sorts of different shapes and forms, and false religions are packaged in all sorts of believable ways. But deceit is a manipulation and a malignancy of truth. It is important to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, Folks, it is important for you to be truthful. It is important for you when you pray, deliver me from the evil one, that you are also saying, Lord, deliver me from being an instrument of the evil one. It's important not to know the truth only, but to be truthful, to be accurate in your representation of the truth, to depict things truthfully as they actually are, to be honest, to communicate accurately, realize that Satan's deceitful activity is beyond the ability of the believer in and of himself to realize or discern it. He can take a little something that you're thinking to hedge on the truth and use you as an instrument to manipulate another believer and to fall into grave sin while he's got you already there. But realize his deceitful activity is beyond your ability to discern it apart from the grace of Christ and the Spirit of God. That's why false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Folks, here's an application right here do not trust yourself or your conclusions. Do not trust yourself or your conclusions. The fundamental temptation that Satan capitalizes on is your pride. And humility is essential to the victory in the battle. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud in the same context as that passage. And it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Be humble. and Call upon the name of God and trust his spirit and draw nigh unto God. And he will draw nigh unto you. Humility is absolutely essential because he loves to capitalize on pride, on self-confidence, and that's what makes you susceptible to deception. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, he's speaking of those who desire the office of an elder and the characteristic One of those characteristics in verse 6, it says, He cannot be a novice or an immature believer, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Because that's exactly what happens. He's going to be a bigger target, being a leader in the church. And if he's got pride, Satan is going to capitalize on it. And he won't even know it. The reason we have been given into a body of a covenant people is so that they and you and me will watch our backside and point out our blind spots and keep the evil one from deceiving us. Do not trust yourself or your conclusions. Look in the light of Scripture, pray for the Spirit of God, and ask a multitude of Christian counselors before any major decision is made. A third thing that he is, is he's a mental manipulator. He works in the minds of men. I've always said this is his greatest playground. As you think about the playground and it's time for recess and the kids go out and they hit the the merry-go-round and the monkey bars and this is just his playground. He's on the trampoline in your mind, bouncing up and down all these ideas. That's why 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, for we walk, or though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And he's warning us here. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God in the pulling down of strongholds. And all of this is the mind, casting down imaginations in every High thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. We're all up here in the mind and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's his greatest playground right here in your mind. Satan will plant thoughts in your mind that are not your thoughts, but they are thoughts and they're his thoughts. He will create disputes in your mind and arguments against your neighbor. He will bring up doubt about, well, did he do so and so? Is that what he said? And all of a sudden, he will begin to flame the envy in your spirit and he will create thoughts of jealousy that could lure you over into that corridor. He is slanderous. He is absolutely malicious and slanderous and evil, and there is no good in him. And he is working in those minds. You're going to have to take those things captive in the gospel. And in the gospel, you have power to do so. If you pray, deliver me from the evil one. Not allow those matters of the mind and those thoughts to flourish and bring forth their fruit. Fourth, he is an abusive accuser. Satan is constantly accusing the brethren. In fact, he is accusing God to the brethren. When you go through trials and tribulations, he's there saying, you know, God's not so good, or God's not all-powerful, or man, how did he let that happen to you? He is always accusing the character of God, trying to get you to doubt the very truthfulness and the the greatness and the glory and the majesty of your creator. He is accusing God, but he's always accusing you. He's accusing you before the throne of God. That's why Jesus is there to make intercession for you. But he also accuses you to the brethren. And that's why you have mouthpieces of this great accuser because temptations... And and the way that the evil one works is through communication. He did it in the garden. He did it with Jesus. He does it with you. Now how how do you hear? Because he's working through other people. Through gossips, through bearers, through those who go in from house to house and who are leading captive He he does it through another mouthpiece and he can use you as that mouthpiece as you entertain gossip and as you accuse your brethren and, and as you are not a forgiving person and you harbor bitterness and you become jealous and all of these kinds of things. You're an instrument when you are not truthful or when you lie or you hedge or you give a little white lie or something. He's using you to accuse He's an abusive accuser. That's why we have to be very careful not to falsely accuse others. That is why we are never to receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. Accusations against leaders will be a favorite activity of Satan, and we cannot play that game. Leaders are bigger targets, and therefore the focus oftentimes of the enemy, and he will bring accusation. But we're going to have to go down the path of those accusations to see if they are truthful or not. But fifth, he is a corrupt cultivator. Satan works within the church. He works very mightily in the church because the church is the target of his malicious activity, and he works within her to the extent that He can. He will sow tares among the wheat. You know the parable? He plants people inside the church for the very purpose to harm and destroy the church, her leaders, and the individual members in it. That is why it is absolutely essential for a church to practice church discipline in the grace and the wisdom of God, for if they do not do that, they will soon become a synagogue of Satan. As he gets in, he loves to cultivate things and false teachings, and he loves to plant things that will divide the people of God and and little schisms here. Sometimes it's not a blatant heresy. Sometimes it's a subtle little division or an emphasis that is going on that is not in the gospel. If he can get you just one degree off of the gospel, he's got you where he wants you. That's why Paul says to Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared as with an iron. He's telling this young pastor, be watchful for that. And he's leaving Timothy in the church of Ephesus to be watchful of that. Because in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is going down to Jerusalem, he actually summons the elders of this very church, Ephesus, and he says, I detect that there are some among you elders that are corrupt. He loves to cultivate from within where he can. So that brings us to the question now, if we know this enemy, what are we to do? And the first and the foremost thing that we are to do as a people As we are to get down on our knees after we have put God's crown rights first and we are to pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. That God will save us from the allurements of this world and the enticements that would bait us away from God's holiness. That God would save us from being deceived and following wrong counsel or hearing bad advice or understanding wrong knowledge or going in a wrong direction. That God would give us the knowledge of the truth to discern the spirits. We pray that God would deliver us from the thoughts that are not honoring and pleasing to Him. We pray that He would renew our minds and transform our thoughts to the glory of God. That God would deliver us from accusations that rail against us, and He would keep us from being instruments of wickedness in that same way. And He would keep us from gossip and malicious speech, that He would give us wisdom and courage to follow through on the wisdom that He grants. When we pray for God to deliver us from the evil one, we pray for our spiritual protection. We pray for our spiritual protection while we go on the journey of life. For our travel safety, if you will. Through this journey and pilgrimage, through the valley of the shadow of death. Even before the table of our enemies. For the spiritual well-being of the church and for her leaders. For our families, for the membership and for the believers who are prone to wander from the God that we love, for believers who, apart from praying this and depending upon God and trusting in Him, can be deceived so easily. But the good news of the Gospel is that Christ came to overthrow all of these corruptions. And as long as we're trusting in Christ, as long as we're praying in His name, as long as we're asking for deliverance, we find that no matter how strong the enemy was to David, our great king, He overcame because he prayed and he trusted God. And God will do the same for you. Because he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now I'm leaving you in the world and I've called you to a great commission. I have called you to a great battle and you will wield the sword of the word of God and you will defeat the enemies and take ground But know that you're in danger, but I will be there to protect you if you pray and watch that you enter not into temptation. So the lesson for us today is do not presume upon God in this. By not praying this last petition, you presume upon God. We are taught by Christ Himself to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from His malignant evil and His desires upon my life for Him not to sift my children as wheat. Deliver Your church, O Lord. Protect Your pastors and Your deacons and their families. Lord, have mercy upon us and save us this day. Save us, we pray. That is a prayer if asked that our Heavenly Father is delighted to answer and to do it to show His glory and His power because the good news of the gospel is it is all-powerful to overcome all of our enemies. But pray. Watch and pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the power of the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is manifest. And you have now left us in this world to promote the gospel, to preach the gospel, to disciple people with the gospel so that the sword of the Spirit would go forth and bring forth many converts and to claim ground and to disciple nations so that the kings may bring her glory into the new Jerusalem. And Lord, we have been lax in this and we have been in danger far too often because we do not pray like we should. So Lord, how thankful we are that you have provided for us the protection and your provision. And we ask that you would protect this church And we pray that you would protect the gospel and that you would protect the word of God from this pulpit of heritage for generations to come until the coming of Christ. We pray you'd protect our families from the evil one and our children from being sifted as wheat and our grandchildren from being his instruments. Lord, we pray for your watch protection over us and the strength in our inner man. You would take command of our minds and of our spirit and cast down every evil imagination that exalts themselves above Christ in any capacity. And Lord, as we humble ourselves this day, knowing our enemy is stronger than we, we are often fearful in this world. We pray that our eyes would be cast upon the Lord God of heaven, who has promised that he will go and fight the battle for us. May we stop battling in our own strength or in our flesh. But according to the Spirit, we pray, and may you win all of these conflicts. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.